Welcome to episode number 16 of Colorado TechCast. There's a great example of this. Have you ever heard of Yap Island? It's a tiny little island in what is modern day Micronesia. Uh, about 3,000 years ago, the Yapese actually came up with the world's first distributed ledger. And it all came about because they had coin. And the, these were giant limestone coins. They could be up to 12 feet tall and weigh 8,000 pounds. What they did was really quite ingenious. The EAPs collectively just kept a mental ledger of who owned what. Well, we'd just stand up in front of the whole tribe and we'd say, I'm going to trade Trapper. I'm going to give him one of my coins and he's going to give me a hundred cattle. And then everyone in their mind would just go, okay, that coin by the beach, that's now Trapper's. That's really all that blockchain is. That's all we're doing is, is we're just trading these digital stones back and forth. Hey everyone, Trapper here. Welcome to Colorado TechCast, the show that tells the behind-the-scenes stories of Colorado technology entrepreneurs and the companies that they're building. To hear new episodes of this program, visit our website at coloradotechcast.com. There you'll find everything you need to know to subscribe to the show with links to iTunes, SoundCloud, and everything else we talk about here on the show. Today I'm speaking with Chris Bennett, the blockchain beard guy. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing so good, Trapper. How are you doing? I'm so grateful to be on the show. It's great of you to have me. Thanks for joining. So I've followed you on LinkedIn for a while. Hashtag blockchain beard guy always pops up. So I have to, have to watch your videos for the daily inspiration or daily lesson. <laughs> oh, thanks. I appreciate the support. So Chris, you've been involved in technology for upwards of uh, 20 plus years. How did you get started in technology? Uh, you know, it, it all started uh, back in the, the early 80s. Um, so at the time, it, it was just a fad. Everyone had an IBM PC and a VHS camcorder, and uh, we, we couldn't be left out. So Dad came home one night with a brand-new IBM PC, and he took it out of the box. And I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen, and I kept asking him, what's that, what's that? And uh, all he would tell me is, uh, I don't know, but it's expensive, and you're not allowed to touch it. So um, <laughs> Dad made it forbidden fruit, <laughs> and... All I wanted to do when, when he was gone was figure out how this machine worked and what it could do. So uh, when he was at work, I'd pull up the manuals and start hacking on it. My, my mom was really cool. She'd tell me, how, well, look, I'm not going to tell your dad, but if, if he catches you, <laughs> I'm not going to lie either. So, um, you know, she was kind of giving me the subtle message that you can go and play with this thing, but you better learn how to cover your tracks. So, right. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it kind of taught me how it works and, uh, and how to be a little bit of a hacker too. But yeah, that's, that's what got me started in tech. How can you not touch it if somebody says you can't touch it? And then it, it's, it's even cooler that you can touch it and then they won't know that you did if you've uh, done a good enough job covering your tracks. Yeah, I mean, t to this day, they won't cop to it, Trevor, but I, I guarantee you they were laying in bed one night like, hey, what, <laughs> how can we get our son into tech? And they came up with just this brilliant plan. And uh, I took it hook, line, and sinker. But, um, yeah, it was it was uh, not wanting to get busted by my dad that uh, got me to where I'm at today. Right, reverse psychology at its best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm trying the same thing with my own son, but uh, it's not as easy as they made it look. So, Chris, where did you go to college, and what was your uh, what was your area of interest? Colorado kid, born and raised, lived here all my life, and uh, so when it's time to, get, to go to school, I decided to go up to Fort Collins, Colorado State University, go Rams. And uh, like like any 18, 19 year old, when you're faced with that decision, um, you get into college, and the first thing they ask you is, now that you've been alive for about five minutes in total, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And uh, so. It, it's a hard question, I think, to ask anybody at that age. Um, so 
I just kind of took the easy answer and I defaulted with, with what I knew. Um, so I went and I got a computer information systems degree from the College of Business. And uh, it, it just, it's really a very, very lucky thing that happened to me that I, I happened to uh, enjoy something that, that there ended up being a lot of employment opportunity and a good future for. And um, it was something I've already been messing around with. Um, but I, I also recognize that it's an area where I've been very, very fortunate, and, and that kind of leads me to where I'm at today, which is really trying to bring as many non-tech people into tech and show people that there's a place for everyone. I kind of you know, feel obligated to do that because of, uh, of the stroke of good luck I had getting into this field to begin with. So when you graduated, this was probably back in late 90s, 2000, I would guess, right? Correct. Yeah, I graduated in 2000. So just in time for the dot-com bust. Or shortly, shortly, just in time for the dot-com bust. Yeah, it was great. Went out there, got my first job, and like two weeks later, the market just got kicked in the teeth, and uh, there was no opportunity. So a lot of your career has been focused in consulting, right? Was this like management consulting? Was this technical consulting? Kind of what was your area of expertise there? No, this this all started out in technology consulting. Uh, my, my first job out of school was with a little company that made report retention and, and document imaging products for banks. And so I was just a road warrior, traveled to all these tiny little towns across the, the Midwest primarily, working with local community banks to, uh, to get this software installed and to teach them how to use it. And I, I really found what's become my professional passion, which is being a public-facing person, always engaging with people, but doing it in a, in a technology-focused space. I actually strayed away from that once, took a job for a couple of years as a heads-down software developer, and uh, yeah, I, I learned a lot, but I just missed the people interaction so much and, and the dynamics of consulting that, that it called me back, and I've never looked back. Nice. So when you're consulting, it, you're bringing a tool set, which is technology, right? Your, your tool set could, be, could practically be anything, right? Whether it's um, you know, hammers, wrenches, pliers, whatever. It just happens to be technology. And you, you work with businesses to use that technology to solve their concerns, solve their, their pressing needs, right? Right. Yeah. It's, it, it's just like any sort of craftsmanship. You could go out and you could buy all the tools at, uh, at Sears, all the craftsman tools, of course, if you can find a Sears anymore. But uh, let, let's say Snap-on. You could go buy a whole Snap-on tool chest and uh, you know, go buy that 63 Camaro that you're going to fix up. But, but that doesn't mean when it actually comes time to pop the hood, you know what you're doing or or what the right tools to use are. So that's what I've always tried to do is, is abstract away the tools and just work with folks to focus on what they know and let me take that and translate that into a technical architecture and uh, you know, an appropriate choice of tooling. Mm -hmm. I think far too often people want to jump to that technology decision first before they've really figured out what it is they want the solution to do. And it's kind of putting the cart before the horse. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what are you focused on now? I am all about blockchain. So I took the red pill about a year ago when I started really focusing on this. I, I knew about Bitcoin. I knew about cryptocurrency. I'd heard some mumbling in the background that, hey, there's this blockchain thing and it underlies that and it's bigger than all that. You know, but there, there was one night I came home and decided to dive into it and started jumping onto YouTube. And uh, it was about 7 p.m. And I remember my wife coming into my office a little after 3 a.m. and Asked if I was ever going to bed, and uh, he's like, "No, no, I'm not." And I just went on a blockchain bender, as I call it, and uh, the world hasn't looked the same since. So, 
you know, what, what I'm all about now is taking what I've been doing for the past 20 years, which is working with non-technical folks to find a way to use technology to give them new powers or abilities in their organization. And I want to apply that to blockchain because there's, there's a lot of technical expertise in blockchain, but there are very few people who come from a background of actual delivery, you know, on time, on budget to a customer with properly set expectations. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I kind of want to apply that traditional discipline to this, this really new and emerging and, and still somewhat undisciplined space. So blockchain has been in the news a lot recently with the extreme fluctuations of, of Bitcoin pricing. But Bitcoin is only one application of blockchain. Is that right? It is. Yeah, I, I always talk about Bitcoin specifically and, and cryptocurrency in general being email to the internet. In, in other words, if you came to me in 94 and you said, hey, Chris, what's the internet all about? Um, the best way I'd have to explain it to you would be through email. But if you walked away from that conversation and you thought that email was all the internet was about or all that it could become, then you, you would have missed the, the boat. You know, you, you wouldn't have imagined things like streaming media, social media, text messaging, voice over IP, you know, all, all the cool stuff that we've done with it since. So, you know, cryptocurrency is the first and I think probably the most boring use case for blockchain, but still so early right now that that's really the only thing we have. So explain blockchain to me like I'm five. <laughs> All right. Um, well, there's, there's a great example. Of this. Have you ever heard of Yap Island? Of Yap Island? I have not. No. Yeah, it's a, it's a tiny little island. It is in what is modern-day Micronesia. And uh, about 3,000 years ago, the Yapese actually came up with the world's first distributed ledger, like the, the very first blockchain. And it all came about because they had coins and they were called ray stones. And the, these were giant limestone coins. They could be up to 12 feet tall and weigh 8,000 pounds. So as you can imagine, it didn't really work to trade those coins directly. You didn't just carry these around in your wallet, did you? <laughs> yeah, two or three at a time. You just got, they were in really good shape back then. <laughs> um, no, what, what they did was really quite ingenious. So they'd take these coins, and they would put them in different places around the island. So we had the coin at the base of the mountain, and we had the coin on the beach, and uh, the coin in the village, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the Yapese collectively just kept a mental ledger of who owned what. So if I had two coins, uh, the coin on the beach and the coin by the mountain, and uh, maybe I wanted to trade with you, well, we'd just stand up in front of the whole tribe at the end of the night, and we'd say, you know, I'm, I'm going to trade Trapper. I'm going to give him one of my coins, and he's going to give me 100 cattle. And then everyone in their mind would just go, okay, that coin by the beach, that's now Trapper's. And that's how they did it. That's really all that blockchain is. It's a little different in that the Yappies could have picked just one person and said, all right, you're the banker. You keep track of all this. But they didn't. They had the whole group keep track of everyone's finances. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think about, you know, the, there's two reasons why we wouldn't want to do this today. The first is scalability. So you can remember maybe a dozen transactions in your head without writing them down. Um, you know, you can track that to, to the Visa network, which can process 17,000 transactions a second worldwide. So we're just so far beyond what a human can do, but that's okay because we've got computers. 
And then the second part is privacy. So it, it was okay back then if all the 20 people you spent your whole life with knew what your personal net worth was. There, there just weren't that many secrets, but that wouldn't work for us today. And that's the part we take care of with cryptographic hashing and uh, different features to protect the anonymity. But at the core, that's all we're doing is, is we're just trading these digital ray stones back and forth. So it's a, it's a distributed ledger that what prevents the double spending problem with uh, or that the currency is required to solve for, right? I, exactly, yeah. So if you think about it, you know, if, if there was a member of the tribe who, who wanted to cheat the system a little bit, if they just decided to have one banker who kept track of all that, then you either only have to corrupt that one person or you just have to wait till they're not paying attention and, and you go change the books. But in a system where everybody's keeping a copy of the ledger, I'd have to convince over half the tribe to go with my version of the truth. And, and so in that sense, it makes it a lot more secure and a lot harder to hack the system and change the truth. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's a technology or an idea that you know, someone invented 3,000 years ago and, and it worked for a while and then the world just kind of forgot about it until 2008, 2009. And you know, the, the anonymous Satoshi publishes his white paper and now we have cryptocurrency and blockchain and uh, you know, we're kind of breathing life into this 3,000-year-old idea. And we consider it to be bleeding edge emerging tech, but it's just everything old is new again. Are these, are these stones still there? Or is there... They are. They become kind of a, a collector's item. Actually, I, I think it's in Australia at the headquarters of the Australian branch of Barclays Bank has a big one in their lobby. Um, but yeah, yeah. In fact, if, if you're a Simpsons fan, one of the very early seasons, I, I think Mr. Burns bought one of these race stones for Homer. Nice. Um, <laughs> I want to say like season three or four, somewhere during the Conan O'Brien years. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. So if blockchain is a distributed ledger, is it only useful for cash transactions or what are some of the other applications for it? I, you know, I, I bump up into get against this one a lot um, because blockchain and Bitcoin or blockchain and cryptocurrency seem to be somewhat synonymous right now, but, but there's a subtle difference. So the way I always describe it is uh, this onion model. So we're all kind of familiar with, with the very outer layer of the onion, which is two or more parties coming together and making a transaction that involves some kind of exchange of monetary value. So this could be uh, you decide to buy my used Toyota Camry for $3,000. So that's something we could do on blockchain. We could say, hey, you know, Trappers agreed to buy this thing from Chris, and here's the money changing hands. And, and that's all very familiar to us. If you peel away that outer layer and we say, all right, we still have two or more parties, and they're still going to have a transaction, but there's no exchange of monetary value. That, that's kind of the second interesting area. And so that gets us into things like healthcare or medical records on blockchain. So maybe you go to your doctor and your doctor decides to put you on a new prescription. And you've got all your medical records on blockchain. So you and your doctor both decide, hey, let's, let's add this. We both agree, let's add this to my medical record. So there you still have two or more parties involved but there's no exchange of anything of monetary value. And then the final layer to that is if, if we peel away this idea of having two or more parties involved, and we just get to a single party standing up and making an announcement about something. So that could be something like voting. One person going in and saying, I, I vote for candidate A, not candidate B. 
It's just one person. It's a very important announcement, and we want to keep it safe and secure. But one person, no exchange of monetary value. And I think when people get to that point that they understand it's a great technology for capturing important announcements in the world, the doors start to open up. So blockchain is the basis of cryptocurrency. Sounds like there's a lot more potential for this than just buying drugs and and, uh, hitmen off of the Silk Road, right? Probably we're at the beginning stage of real product market fit, so to speak, to use the, the trendy buzzword these days of blockchain, right? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I love talking about this use case of a supply chain. You know, so I, I always talk about, you know, pretend that, that your young child has a very severe pesticide allergy. And so you have to be very, very diligent about the produce that you buy when you go to the grocery store. And today, the only real guide you have to go off of is that USDA organic label that they stick on everything. And so you go to the checkout line and, and you're you're happy you got the organic produce, but there's always something in the back of your mind that wonders, how do I know someone just didn't print up the label and stick it on there? Mm-hmm. And, and it worries you a little bit. In blockchain, if you think back to this idea of announcements, and it's a good way to capture announcements, we could create a blockchain solution where you know, I grow the apples on my orchard and my friend Sally comes in and she treats them with the organic pesticide. So I can make this announcement that, hey, I, I planted the seeds. And three months later, she gave them the first treatment, and here's what they were treated with. And then there was one more treatment, and then at the end, something really cool happens. You come by, and you've got Trapper's Electric Trucking, and you bought all these cool new Tesla semis, and you're the one who delivers it to the store. So you make that announcement. And so... I'm in the store now, and instead of having that USDA organic label, there's just a QR code, and I can scan that with my phone, and I can see that whole supply chain record. I can see this is when I planted the apples, me being a different me in this scenario. Um, I can see that, hey, here's where they're treated with the pesticide, and finally, here's where you came and you picked them up with your electric truck. So not only do I feel good that I bought the apples and I have a little bit more verification that they're safe, something else is happening. There's also a new cross-cutting concern. So if, I, if I'm a very green-focused consumer, I might go, man, I, I didn't know there was an electric trucking company. That's really cool. And since I'm here at the store and I also have to buy toothpaste, deodorant, and soap, I'm going to look for the toothpaste, deodorant, and soap that Trapper delivered with his electric trucks because that makes me feel good. And so now you have B2B players that are on the field competing for in-consumer mind share exactly like the B2C players are. And that's something they've never been able to do. So I love giving that example. It's got nothing to do with currency or money or exchange of value, but it's just a great use case for the benefits that blockchain provides. So this all is for the, the counterfeit issues that a lot of industries are facing now where uh, you can't tell a, a real Rolex between a, a fake Rolex because the manufacturing processes are so good. Maybe it's not such an issue with with a watch that you wear or a purse that you carry, but you know when you get into pharmaceuticals uh, and knowing is this drug from Pfizer or is this drug from a counterfeit operation overseas? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I, I think you know one of the neat things about blockchain and really technology in general is it it gives bad actors a much smaller area that they can hide in. So you know, it's, it's not to say that it makes that kind of risk go away completely, uh, but if, if you're interested in counterfeiting Rolexes or 
pharmaceuticals, your life just got a whole lot tougher because of this technology. There's a lot more work you need to go through now to try and pull the wool over someone's mm-hmm. eye. So when you say this is a distributed ledger, how do I join blockchain or how do I join this network? So there's, there's kind of two ways. You can do one or the other or a combination. You can say, you know what, I, I just want to use blockchain as a place to store this important data to record these important announcements. And so I'm going to use the existing infrastructure, and I'm just I'm going to use it like a, a database or a bulletin board where I just go you know, post interesting or relevant information that's important to me. The other angle is you can say, well, I, I want to get into the mining side or the, the group consensus or validation side. So today that involves buying a lot of fancy hardware and, and uh, sucking down a lot of electricity. But all those machines are doing is, is they are providing that infrastructure for the blockchain. They, they are essentially <clears throat> all the tribe members that are keeping that individual copy of the ledger and then validating it with everyone mm-hmm. else. So you can say, hey, I, I just want to be on the mining side, or I just want to use the resources that all these other miners are providing, or I want to do a little bit of both. You know, there's, there's this misconception out there that with a lot of this high-tech stuff, emerging tech, that if, if you don't come from a tech background, there's not a place for you. And, and that's a narrative that I'm very, very determined to change. It, it was a lot there. I'm 41 years old. It was a lot different when I was growing up because technology culture, it, it was its own subculture. You, you were the nerd. You were the EV club. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, uh, you know, I, Gary Vaynerchuk talks about this. He's got a great analogy. I don't want to take credit for it. But he, he said, you know, back in our day, Urkel and Dr. Dre were two very different cultures. Mm-hmm. And what's happened over the last 20 years is they've become the same. You know, so if you can actually write code, that's some pretty gangster stuff to the kids that are, are coming up now. So the, the cultural narrative around it has changed. And so we're starting to see a lot of people get into technology and do amazing things with technology because unlike in our day, no one's coming along and saying, hey, you can't do that. You don't fall in the right group or background or experience to do that. And, you know, one example I love is, is this woman out in Baltimore who owns a hair salon. She's been in health and beauty her whole life. And she got the Amazon Echo for Christmas. She thought it was really cool. And she thought it'd be really cool if uh, she could do an Alexa skill where folks could just ask questions, uh, beauty-related questions. You know, what, what's the best nail polish if I use this kind of mascara sort of thing and, and really get valuable answers for it. So she took two weeks, went home at night after work, spent a few hours every night studying JavaScript and learning the code. And, you know, a month later, she's got three different skills out in the Amazon store, you know, all, all doing this health and beauty stuff. And I just think that's such a cool story because, no one ever told her, hey, you're not supposed to know how to code because you work in health and beauty. And, and that's the future. So that's always my warning is if you want to be the, the antisocial, uber-technical person that just kind of sits in that dark room and, and doesn't want to interface with people, I hate to say it, but I think your days are numbered. Yeah. You know, like, Technology is just going to become the literacy of the 21st century. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, when we stop talking about, and I'm, I'm totally going to steal your phrase here. Great artist steal, man. Go be a great artist. When we stop talking about the platform and start talking about the applications, that's when we know that the technology's achieved widespread usage, right? The internet isn't Windows 95. The internet's just 
it's pervasive, it's everywhere. And you, you don't have to think about the underlying technology or the infrastructure or the system. You just use it. You pull out your phone, you click the app and, and all the all the magic happens behind the scenes. And you can focus on using the tool for what you need it to do and not have to worry about the care and feeding of the beast. Yeah, there's there's this weird trend, you know, with, with emerging tech. Um, we, again, we go back to the, the dot-com, the internet days, because I, I think we're on the same trajectory. We're just doing it on compressed time scales. But, you know, when, when new tech like this comes along, the first thing everyone wants to know is, how does it work? And if we went back 25 years ago and we asked the average person two questions, do you know what the Internet is and do you know how it works, they would have said no to both. And if we took that same person today in 2018 and we asked them those two questions, do you know what the Internet is, they'd say, yes, of course, it's, it's totally normalized. I get it. It's part of my everyday life. And then we could ask the second question, do you know how it works? And to a T, almost every non-technical person would say, I have no idea. Um, so this, this new tech comes along, and I think we get real hung up on wanting to understand how it works. But the way it always plays out is it just becomes normalized through the solutions that we build on. Um, you know, the, the Internet seems normal to people because they're comfortable going to YouTube and watching videos. And they're comfortable going to Facebook and messaging their friends. And they're comfortable going to LinkedIn and updating their resume. Um, you know, so, so we talk about the Internet now in terms of the applications and the tooling that we've built on top of it, not necessarily the technology underneath. And I think once we get more solid use cases on blockchain outside of this cryptocurrency, I, I think we'll see the narrative move the same way for blockchain too. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, just getting the technology out there and getting the applications out there and matured enough to where people don't have to know the underlying systems in order to get the value out of it. With your background in consulting, how do you how do you see your career playing out with blockchain and with that, you know, more business focused approach? You know, I I I hate to sound uh, you know, overvalue my skills or, or my services come across that way, but um I, I really think there's a big need right now to get folks to step away from the technology a little bit and just kind of focus on on the applications for it. You know, come to an understanding of the high level principles, but you don't necessarily need to be an expert on all the nuts and bolts to really see where it's going. You know, I, I think the other thing that's happening right now, and, and we see this play out over and over too, is anytime there's a group of emerging technologies, so blockchain is just part of this bigger narrative that includes AI and AR, VR and IoT and automation. And all of these emerging areas of technology tend to get talked about at the macro level like their peers. And really, I, I'm pumped about blockchain because they're not. They fall into different layers. And for so many of these other emerging technologies, blockchain becomes that enabling foundational layer. So this idea of IoT, for example, and uh, when my ketchup is about to run out, my refrigerator orders more ketchup from Amazon, <laughs> so I never have to think about it. Um, that's an idea that sounds really great in concept, and then people start to think about it, and they go, well, well shoot, what if the Russians hack my refrigerator? <laughs> you know, and, and now I can't eat or I'm getting a bunch of products I don't want. You know, blockchain, because it's, it's decentralized, there's multiple versions of that ledger, and changing the truth is so hard, really kind of becomes that enabling technology underneath IoT or a lot of these other areas that, that gives us a certain level of safety and security and comfort to actually bring them forward into the real mm -hmm. world. So that's, that's kind of the 
awesome short-term potential I see behind blockchain. And then uh, if, if we really want to get out there in the future, I love giving this answer because I get asked a lot, you know, what's, what's, what's the potential upside to this? I, I don't know if you watched the Falcon Heavy launch a few weeks back, but we're, we're back in space. And Elon is, is committed to getting humans on Mars in the next five years. So I'll be conservative. And I'll say in the next decade, human beings are going to be a multi-planetary society. And when that happens, we are bringing an entire second planet into the human economy. You know, so, so you thought the Louisiana Purchase was big. You know, this, this is going to generate just vast amounts of wealth. And when that happens, this centralized model of banking and finance, it's not going to work in a time where, under best-case scenario, it's a 26-minute trip at light speed down trip, you know, to make a transaction. We're going to need some kind of better technology. And, and so that's why decentralization is so important. And um, yeah, that, that's what I think the long-term future looks like. So just really exciting stuff. So kind of going with the, the multi-planetary theme, so blockchain is decentralized, but can you have private decentralized nodes? Or does it have to be part of the larger blockchain ecosystem? No, no. Uh, private blockchains, I think, are, are actually a, a little bit more interesting from a use case perspective than public blockchains because there, there are lots of areas in business and commerce and, and just life in general where it's important for a small group of people to extract the benefits of blockchain, uh, but it, it doesn't necessarily matter to the rest of us. Um, so, for example, we, we go back to the buying the apples in the store example, that, that's a great use case for a private blockchain. Um, all the members in that supply chain could choose to set up their, their own little mini blockchain because it's, it's cheaper and more efficient um, just to have a blockchain focused on that. But it's still one that even though it's privately owned, it's open to the public. So I can go and I can read all that data with my phone just by scanning the QR code. Um, you know, that's... That's the kind of thing that doesn't necessarily need to go on a, on a public blockchain like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, it, it can just be run between the members of, of that small ecosystem. Mm -hmm. and it's anonymous enough where the parties participating in the transaction, there's no exposure for personal information, right? Yeah. You know, I, I always explain it to folks as, as a, a digital fingerprint. So, you know, if, if you took everyone in your office or, or your hometown or you know, whatever uh, a small community is and you wrote down, on a giant chalkboard, everyone's name, and then next to their name, how much money they had in their bank account, <laughs> no one would like that. But if, if we took that same chalkboard and we wrote down what everyone had in their bank account, but instead of putting the name next to it, we just put a thumbprint, well, then any stranger walking up to that or, or anyone, really, you wouldn't have a way of knowing how much anybody was worth. But if you ever had to prove that one of those lines was yours and you actually had that much money, you could do it very easily just by showing me that you could reproduce that thumbprint. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the, the cryptographic side of blockchain and the, the piece that uh, attempts to protect anonymity and, and privacy. So privacy is huge now. Every day there's a new breach, it seems like, and they get, they get bigger and bigger. You know, as, as Facebook grows or Yahoo grows or Equifax grows, you know, one breach could potentially include the entire population of Denver in it, right? Denver and, and all other major cities. Is there a way for blockchain to make data leaks or make data breaches a thing of the past with the anonymity you were talking about? Absolutely, there's, there's an opportunity there. You know, it still requires intelligent design and architecture. Because at the end of the day, 
blockchain is the mechanism for recording data. So if you're not careful, either in the conventional world or in the, the decentralized world, about protecting your data, you're opening yourself up to some risk. What blockchain does is it gives us a, a much more, more sophisticated tool set if we do want to be proactive about protecting that data. It makes things a, a lot harder to falsify. So, for example, you, you talked about Experian, the credit rating agencies. You know, there are less than half a dozen of those organizations on the planet. So if I could hack into three or four of those systems and I had a grudge against you, I could really turn your life upside down just by updating three or four computer records. If we go back to Yap Island and this ledger is shared amongst everyone in the tribe, it's not that easy anymore. I, I have to get at least 51% or more of the world to agree that your credit score really is a, a negative 9,000. Um, and, and that's going to be a lot tougher. So we still have to be diligent and good design principles still apply, but what we've got is much, much more sophisticated tooling to be able to build solutions that work and, and protect privacy and anonymity in the modern world. That's a really good example. I, I like that because you know, if you can distribute all of the all of the credit ratings for you know the entire U.S. and the blockchain, you can still authenticate that it's you using your chalkboard thumbprint example. But I can't, and the person who wants to do you harm can't. And because it's distributed, trying to falsify that information just becomes a wasted effort, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know, blockchain is a very interesting space because it's it's actually um, codifying principles of game theory that we've understood for a while. Um, so you, you get into group consensus and this idea that no matter what the mechanism is, it, it's always going to cost you as a validator some real-world cost to validate a group of transactions. And if, if you put your stamp of approval on something that, that the rest of the tribe or the rest of the nodes don't agree is correct, you have zero chance of getting um, compensated for what mm -hmm. you spent. So there's a real big financial downside if, if you do try and game the system where all you end up doing is giving up all your own money and, and never really being able to take much in return. Um, it's, it's interesting now that we're programming computers to obey some of the basic rules of motivation and economics that humans have followed for centuries. Right. Oh, man, I love game theory. That's awesome. <laughs> Me too. Me too. It's a fun area. Do you want to talk about the training you're doing now? So I'm a, a curriculum developer and instructor with the Blockchain Training Alliance, and we're a group that started up um, with a long history in, in corporate instructor-led technical training, um, but now focused exclusively on blockchain. And we are constantly working with coming out with uh, new courses, new material, new curriculum. Uh, right now we've got courses for general blockchain architecture, and then that breaks down into hyperledger development or Ethereum development. And we're working right now on an offering around blockchain security, cybersecurity. You know, we, we've got our eyes on doing some certifications and exams around IoT, but I get asked a lot by people looking to get into this space, how can I break in? And, you know, if you don't have experience and you want to get in, I think that's one of the best ways is uh, go through the course, get a certification, and, and then you can actually demonstrate to a potential employer or, or anybody else that, that you've got the chops in this space. So that's what, that's what we're doing. Global training, we run it through Pearson View Testing Centers, so 
anyone listening anywhere on the planet, if, if you're interested in this, go check out Blockchain Training Alliance. We'd love to get you trained up and ready to go take the world by storm. What's a website for that, Chris? It is, yeah, that, that's a really good question. I probably should include that in the plug, huh? It is blockchaintrainingalliance.com, just like it sounds. Blockchaintrainingalliance.com. Make sure to link to that you in the show notes. And then just a few weeks ago, we, we had the Ethereum hackathon here in Denver, and those are really cool. We're starting to see uh, the Ethereum Foundation and Consensus put up these hackathons in a lot of other cities, so uh, Memphis, Toronto, New York. Um, but what, what really blew me away about Denver and I wasn't expecting this till I showed up, was just how big the community is here. For a first-year event to have 1,400 participants in a hackathon, uh, it, it just blew my mind. And so I, I really walked away with that thinking, okay, if uh, California has Silicon Valley, then I, I think Denver has Block Valley, and uh, there's, there's really something cool that's happening here. Wow, 1,400 people for the first year alone? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and it's, you know, it was a really interesting group. It was, um, there was definitely very little attention, you know, from from some of the large business players, but that is going to change. What I thought was really neat was just walking around and, and meeting a lot of the teams that were participating in the hackathons, and I saw a lot of teams that weren't just engineers or software developers, but you, you might have one software developer and a school teacher and a musician. So you had some really diverse teams, and that created some incredibly creative presentations at the end um, where folks were showing off skills that weren't just technology-focused. And so it, it really gave me a, a real positive feeling for the future in that uh, I, I think folks getting into this space see solutions, development, and architecture in a much more holistic and well-rounded view. So everybody knows that Colorado is a hotbed for technology right now. Why do you think, why do you think East Denver had such a large turnout for the first event? I, you know, I, I was not expecting that many people, so I, I was a bit surprised. You know, I, I think Denver is just a, a real hotbed for technology. You know, we, we've had so much growth over the past five, ten years, but despite all that growth, there still aren't enough tech people to fill all the jobs that we want to fill here. So you know, Denver has one of the lowest unemployment rates for tech workers in the country, and I, I think that's attracting a lot of people who want to be in this space to Denver. You know, if, if you're really into technology, but you're you're not willing to uh, take the cost of living sacrifice that it takes to, to live in Silicon Valley or, or to live in New York City or to live in downtown Boston, then Denver's really kind of a neat place to be. Great culture, great atmosphere, great resources around us with the mountains, plenty to do recreationally, and just a, a very, very vibrant tech community, as I'm sure you know from, from talking to all the people in the space here. Yeah, definitely. It seems like we we have the native talent, you know, such as yourself, but also we are attracting people who are, whether they're fresh out of college and are just drawn to the, the vibe that Colorado puts off, or you've got people moving in from more expensive areas. I was reading that San Francisco right now has the highest move-out rate in anywhere else in the country. If you wanted to be in tech, San Francisco is the place to be. It's just so expensive now that I think their loss is is our gain. Yeah, you know, and, and the other technical hotbed areas like that, I think Silicon Valley especially, just become so competitive and so cutthroat that um, it's it's just not the kind of culture that I think a lot of people want, you know, especially, especially blockchain culture, which, uh, you know, so many of the folks in this space right now seem much more concerned with 
enacting positive change in the world around them and using technology to fix the things they know are broken than they do about money or financial rewards. So the, you know, the, the whole weekend walking around at the hackathon talking to folks, um, I, I heard so many visions for how people want to make the world a better place. I did not hear one single person talking about a, a moonshot or getting their Lambo or cashing out and being a millionaire. So I, I just thought that was yeah, really cool. That is cool. So what I love about the, the technology culture here is you know, how collaborative it is. You know, if you want to get started, show up to a meetup, ask questions. And, you know, people like yourself, the blockchain beard guy, they're always going to post something interesting. Don't say I'm always going to post something good because that's oh, way yeah. too much pressure. you you got to give me a few dogs. But, uh, yeah, it's it, it's an incredible group of people. Um, and, and what's really amazed me is a lot of the other tech subcultures that I've been a part of throughout my career um, have, have always felt very exclusionary. Um, you know, so you, you kind of have to earn your chops to be a part of it and prove what you know before anyone gives you any respect. And you know, blockchain is this, this community that I've found anyway. When you meet the people in real life and you step in and you start engaging with them, you're just welcomed with open arms. And nobody's above, you know, taking an absolute newbie and, and spending a couple hours and sitting down with them and, and giving them the red pill mm-hmm. too. So it's, it's uh, definitely a very, very different sort of technological movement. It's, it's much more grassroots and bottom up than a lot of other things we've seen. Well, I think the adoption rate is going to be advanced by, you know, people like yourself who take, take the technical details and come up with applications that non-technical people can use. What I think is really interesting about the blockchain platform is you know, using your example of, of email in the internet 20 years ago. You know, I think we'll look back and if Moore's law holds true, hopefully not 20 years, but we'll look back at, you know, this conversation and just marvel at how integrated blockchain is and, you know, day-to-day life where we don't even think about blockchain. We just use, you know, use the service. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot like the, the internet, you know, there, there's just so many parallels. I love comparing and contrasting, but, you know, you think about the early days of the internet and, and you wanted to get on the internet, that was a thing you had to go do. So, you, you had to you pick up the phone to go plug in the modem, and you know you realize mom was still talking to Aunt Sally, so you got to wait till she finishes, and, and then you get the plug the modem plugged in, and you go to dial up to AOL, and you got to tweak all your Windows ninety five drivers to make it work, and then you're on the internet for a while, and then you disconnected, and you contrast that today where the internet's just always there; it, it's a part of the fabric of life. Um, and, and we never think about logging on, logging off, that sort of thing. So I, I see blockchain ending up in the same space where we just kind of forget it's there, and we don't talk about blockchain just like we don't talk about the Internet. We talk about the stuff we built on it, so the YouTube, the Facebook, the Instagram, voice over IP, those kind of things. Um, those, those are the terms we use now instead of TCP IP or the World Wide Web. Um, so oddly enough, I, I think when people stop using the word blockchain, that's how we know it's really gone mainstream. Yeah. Yep. I agree. So it sounds like the the future of blockchain is, is extremely strong. And for a first turnout of, of ETH Denver to have 1400 people, you can only imagine what next year is going to be like. Yeah. Very exciting. Mark your calendars next year. Anyone who's listening, it's going to be a lot of fun. Even if you just come down for a day and, and walk around just to get a sense of the vibe, it, it's uh, really a a really cool community. I encourage yep. everyone next year to, to just stop by.
Again, if you want that training and certification, I applaud that one selfishly because I love teaching. I am, I'm sure you wouldn't have guessed this, but I just love teaching and talking about this stuff and, and getting people excited about it. So, you know, less of a, a plug to make me rich and more of a plug just to make me happy. Sign up for the course. Let me come out. Let me teach you. Let me get to know you. Talk about how blockchain can make your life, your business, your ideas better or not. You know, that's, that's just a very selfish ask for me because I love doing this kind of work. That sounds great. We'd have to check it out. How can people follow you? Um, you know, LinkedIn right now, I think, is just an amazing community. I, I come across so many people every day who go, really, the resume site? Because they just haven't logged on in the last 18 months, but there's an amazing renaissance that's going on there. And I'm very biased, but I think it's the best blockchain community online. So um, go to LinkedIn, look me up, Chris Bennett, look up Blockchain Beard Guy, you'll find me. Also on Instagram, Blockchain Beard Guy, Twitter, KBennett5280. Probably should update that to Blockchain Beard Guy, but we'll get around to that. But uh, yeah, LinkedIn is, I think, the most dynamic, interesting community. It's also the one that is the least developer or tech-heavy focused. And, and so there's some really interesting conversations at a business and solutions architecture level that happen there. So it, it's a great place to get up to speed. Chris, I want to thank you for coming on Colorado TechCast. The potential for blockchain is just so amazing right now. And I really like how you likened it to email in the early days of the internet. You know, the fact that there's so many different blockchain meetups in Colorado and in Boulder and Denver right now really bolsters my confidence in the Colorado community to really rally around this new technology and, and make something great with it. So appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, Trapper, it's been an honor to be a part. I really appreciate you carving out the time and, and talking to me about this. And thanks to everyone who's listening and, and who's excited about blockchain. And uh, if, if you have any questions or anything, um, come find me. I, I'm always here to help. Thanks for listening to this episode of Colorado TechCast. To hear more episodes of the show, visit our website at coloradotechcast.com. We're also on Twitter at cotechcast. And we love hearing your comments, so keep them coming. I'm Trapper Little, and I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of Colorado TechCast.